please take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We're going to begin our reading today in verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. It's on page 807, if you've picked up a cart Bible with us. It is said uh, that each year before the beginning of the PGA Tour, Jack Nicklaus would go to his coach, and he would start all over again at the beginning. He would tell him, teach me how to play golf. And they would go back to the basics and, and to swing and to strategy, and they would learn all over again. Well, so it is uh, for true believers that it is never a wearisome thing to hear again uh, the story from the beginning and to go back and to hear these familiar words about Christ and his incarnation. And today, we'll be reading just that. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. We'll go on to verse 25. Before we read God's word together, please join me as we seek his blessing upon its reading and its hearing. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we thank you for this word that you have given us, which teaches us about Christ. And so give us your spirit, we pray, that we would hear it freshly that we would believe on him who came to die for us so that we might live with you. We pray that you would do this in our hearts for the glory of your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Matthew, chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child, from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we read it together and study it today. The saying goes uh, that good things come in small packages. It's often true when it comes to Christmas. My favorite example uh, of this maxim is mincemeat pies. They are just little things uh, that we were introduced to when we were in seminary, and we had a few English friends, and Christmas has never been the same. Uh, they're, they're, they're small, just about the size. If you've never had a mincemeat pie, just about the size of a large cookie. You can hold, uh, hold one or, or two, uh, if you need to, uh, in your hand with a little dollop of brandy butter, and you can finish them off in, in a bite or two, uh, but uh, they're wonderful. They taste just like Christmas wrapped in pie crust. They are warm and sweet and spicy and bright all at once. And at our house, they're one of the little things that make Christmas feel like Christmas. Christmas carols are another good example. They're just small things. Even those ones that have six, eight, nine verses, 
You can sing them in, in just a few minutes, and you can take them anywhere with you because the tune gets in your heart, and you can, you can hum them in traffic, you can whistle them in the shower, you can sing them while you're cleaning around the house. Uh, and, and most of them, though they are small snippets of praise, most of them carry a weight beyond their stature. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian fear for sinners, here the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Just a few lines that pretty much says it all. In a few lines, you can sing the gospel of the incarnate God, the one who is the prince of peace and yet became a peasant, the one who is the almighty creator of all things and yet was contracted into a span, the Lord of life who became a baby and proved again that good things come in small packages. Good things come in small passages, too. What we read today is just a small thing, just a few verses. It's a little paragraph. Just a few little details, but in here is all the wonder of the gospel that we celebrate again each Christmas. Today, as we look at this little passage, I want to look with you through the lens of three names that we find here. Three names in these verses that teach us something about who our Savior is and why it is that He came into the world. You folks are pretty astute, observant. You've noticed there are more than three names in this passage, so we're going to have to, we're going to, have to be selective. Let's start where we need to. Two of the names in this passage are given to the Savior, so we're going to include those. He's called Jesus, then he's called Emmanuel, so, so we're going to look at those two names. Uh, but there is another name in this passage, and it's the third name, is the one that uh, is given to the man who became Jesus' earthly father. So I want to begin together today by considering uh, this man named Joseph. In fact, we're going to spend most of our time uh, considering Joseph, and I think that's a good thing because Joseph, you might know, is, is something like the overlooked gift at Christmas time. Each Christmas morning, there are the gadgets, and there are the toys, and there are the big ticket items that everybody gets all excited about, but somewhere under the tree, there is also that annual pack of socks, right? There, there is the new hat, there's the pair of mittens, uh, there's a toothbrush stuffed into your stocking for good measure, and those are good things. It's a nice gesture. You're glad uh, to have that hat, but let's be honest, when the parents, the grandparents call later that afternoon and they ask the children, what did you get for Christmas? Nobody says, I got socks. Nobody mentions the socks. It's just kind of overlooked, and that's the way Joseph is often treated when we come to the Christmas story. Maybe it's because in, in the Christmas pageant, he doesn't have any speaking lines. Did you notice? Scripture doesn't record a single thing that Joseph says. Mary gets all the best lines. Be it to me as you have said. Humble faith and joy and exuberance as she sings the Magnificat. She gets all of the best lines. And Joseph is the silent partner. The silent figure in the nativity scene. He's this strong, silent husband who is seen and never heard. He is known for just a few functional things, things that don't steal the spotlight, things that are, are good things. He's known for his righteous obedience to the Lord, 
He's known by his compassion to his family, and those are good things, but we don't look at them and, and think that they're all that special. They don't get our attention. And in fact, his name, the meaning of his name, Joseph, that's not all that special either. He was probably one of thousands of Josephs in Judea at this time. Seeing a Joseph would, at this time would have been a little bit like going into a homeschool co-op and, and calling out, hey Isaiah, just to see how many kids turn their head and think you might be talking to them. I told my wife I wasn't going to use that joke today, but there it was. Uh, he was probably one of thousands of Joseph's. Joseph was a perennially popular name among the Jewish people, and it went back uh, to a prayer of a, a mother that the Lord would add more and more children to the family. You remember, perhaps, all the way back to the first Joseph. He was a son of Jacob, and he came toward the end of a very long line of one-upmanship between uh, a few different wives trying to see which one could produce more children to carry on the family line, more sons especially, which one could outdo the other in bearing heirs for the family. And at this long line of missteps and ten older brothers, finally Joseph is born, a boy is born to Rachel. And Genesis chapter 30 tells us, she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. That's what Joseph means. May he add. May the Lord add. It was a prayer. May the Lord give me more sons. May Yahweh make his people fruitful. May he fulfill and accomplish the promise to make Abraham's children fill the land that he's giving to them. It's interesting, as you trace the name of Joseph through the Old Testament, it doesn't show up much outside of Genesis until you get later in the history. Toward the end of the Chronicles, in Ezra and Nehemiah, as the people are coming back from Babylon and they're praying all over again, Oh Lord, would you add? Oh Lord, would you increase? Oh Lord, would you make your people fruitful in the land? And so at this time, Jewish parents are always praying that same prayer. So they're always naming their boys Joseph. Oh Lord, would you add more? And maybe we could imagine about this time, Joseph praying that same prayer or thinking that same thing for himself. The narrative picks up where Joseph is unfianced. He is betrothed to this young woman, and he probably doesn't know Mary very well, actually. That's the way it worked. It was arranged by parents, and, and you would meet her maybe, you would make promises, but, uh, but you didn't have much of a relationship. He might not have known her very well, but he did know the importance of marriage and the importance of fruitfulness, especially to the Jewish people. And as he looked over the landscape of his, of his impending marriage, maybe he looked forward to a time that the Lord would add to him. Maybe the Lord would give him a child. Maybe a son. Maybe a namesake to, to carry the family line, to take on the family business. Maybe he imagined that day that he would stand with his bride at the synagogue, and, and as they did, the rabbi would join their hands and, and bind them together, and the rabbi would pray and recite that prayer of Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways, they would say. 
You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. It was a prayer. It was a promise. It was a fitting psalm for a Joseph, I think. May the Lord add. A righteous man who fears the Lord, a man who's on his way, he thinks, perhaps, to pursuing the Psalm 128 family plan. And then disaster strikes. Verse 18, when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That's not how it's supposed to happen. Fruitfulness is good, and a family is good, but there is something out of order, and let's be honest, uh, people were primitive by our standards, but not so primitive that Joseph needed somebody to draw him a diagram. He knows, he thinks at least, what's going on here. Matthew gives you, he, he gives us that all-important information of what's going on behind the scenes, of what the Lord is doing, that she, is, she is not, uh, has, has not been impregnated by, by some other man, but, but rather by the miraculous overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing untoward happening here, and the Holy Spirit is working, and Matthew tells you what's going on behind the scenes, but maybe Joseph doesn't know yet. Or maybe if he heard, maybe if, if Mary spoke to him, maybe he simply doesn't believe. But whether he doesn't know or whether he doesn't believe, it has the same effect either way. He decides that he must end this engagement. Thankfully, he is a compassionate man. He does not take the nuclear option that was available to him. This time, Joseph could have pressed the red button. He could have taken Mary to the town judges and exposed her and brought her up on charges of suspected adultery. And had it been just a few centuries earlier, they would have ridiculed her and shamed her and spat upon her and set her outside the city. And then she would have been stoned to death by all the men in her town. Well, by this time, the Romans were ruling, and so the Jews didn't have the power of Uh, of uh, the death penalty anymore, but the option was still available if he wanted it to expose Mary to shame, to cast her out as a wicked woman, but he didn't. Thankfully, Joseph decided to put her away privately, to save her as much face as he possibly could. But no matter how he came to his decision, it couldn't have been easy. Can you imagine the, the anguish in Joseph's heart as he laid his head to sleep that night in Nazareth? Can you imagine the unexpected disappointment when he learned that the faithful, fruitful life that he had dreamed the Lord might be preparing for him was not going to come as easily as he had hoped? I mean, hadn't the Lord promised that those who fear him would be blessed? Their house would be fruitful, their wife would be fruitful, their children would would abound. And now he's involved in a scandal. And the scandal just keeps getting bigger and bigger, the larger the belly of his betrothed was getting. And from where he stood, it must have felt like all the promises the Lord was making were in danger of going unfulfilled. Here's the first thing that we learn about Jesus from this man named Joseph. We learn that Jesus came into a world that's full of waiting. We learn that Jesus came into a world that's full of 
of unsettled longing for God's promises to come to life. Jesus came into a world where because of our our sinful short-sightedness, we struggle to see how God can make good on all that he said that he will do for his people. If you don't believe me, take a look. There's another clue in here that this is exactly the world that Jesus entered into. Do you notice when the angel shows up, how he speaks to Joseph? He calls him Joseph, son of David. Verse 20, take a look. As he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, that is a strange way to speak to a carpenter, especially one whose father was named Jacob. His father, his immediate father, was not named David. And and when the angel shows up, he actually takes him on, on this trip through his genealogy 28 generations previous to speak of this carpenter in Nazareth in the same breath as the greatest king that Israel has ever known. He shows up and he calls him Joseph, son of David. I don't want to step on Andrew's toes too much. Because on Christmas Eve, in just a few days, Andrew's going to come and and help us to see the gospel in this long list of names at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. We're we're not going to unpack it, but I want you to notice how important David's name is in this family tree. Take a look at verse 17. David is one of the landmarks that, that trace God's promises through the Old Testament and on to Jesus. Verse 17 says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Those are the landmarks. Matthew frames the entire Old Testament narrative and all of God's promises going from the man of faith, Abraham, to the one who is the fulfilled promise of the seed, the Christ. And he gives us landmarks. Abraham, David, exile, Jesus. And you cannot help but notice that sudden interruption that downward movement in what was otherwise an upward trajectory. Abraham, the man of faith, the one that we saw just last week, God came and he made a promise. He promised to give him a land and a name to make him a blessing to all the peoples. He promises him children, like the sands on the seashore and like the stars in the heavens. By the time in the Old Testament you get to David, these things are beginning to be fulfilled The people are massive, and the land is theirs, and it seems like the Lord is prospering everything David puts out his hand to touch. And then another promise. David, there is always going to be a son of your line to sit on the throne of Israel. There will always be a Davidic king to rule over the people of promise. Things are looking up for God's people by the time that we get to David, and then it happens. Disaster strikes and that downward spiral of rebellion and compromise. And it leads to invoking the curse that we will see when we get in our Old Testament readings to Deuteronomy chapter 28, where the Lord says that if you will not follow me, I will make the land spit you out. And they're sent into exile into Babylon. 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is sent away into Assyria. About 140 years later, the last son of David is ripped from the throne, and the people of Judea are taken away off into Babylon. Even after the exiles returned, by the way, even after that landmark, things didn't get all that much better. The temple was rebuilt, and all the old men wept 
because of how puny it was in comparison with the first one. And the Babylonian kingdom gave way to the Persian kingdom. And the Persian kingdom gave way to the Greek kingdom. And then to the Seleucids. And, and then to the Romans. And one kingdom after another, always with their foot on the necks of the Jewish people. And God had promised that they were going to be a blessing to all nations. And now they had become the footstool. And from where they stood, it looked like God's promises were in danger of becoming unfulfilled and unfulfillable. And that's when the angel showed up. What's the message? Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Joseph, I know that from where you stand, it might look like things have gone pear-shaped. It might look as though you're waiting and longing for the promises of God, and he has left you. He has abandoned you. That's what it looks like. But you need to know that God is still at work. It, it doesn't matter that you can't see the way he's working behind the scenes yet. It doesn't matter that you can't fathom what he could possibly be doing in this situation that seems to have gotten so far out of hand, and you were just trying to make your way through the world, weren't you? And Joseph, you need to know that God has not abandoned you. He's not abandoned his promises. He's not abandoned his promises to those who fear him and walk in accord with his laws and his name. He's not abandoned his promises to Abraham. He's not abandoned his promises to David. You see, Joseph teaches us that Christ came into a world full of waiting in order to prove that God will not let his promises go unfulfilled. It's probably somewhat trite at Christmas time for the pastor to stand and to ask you, what is it that you're waiting for this season? especially when there is a potential that, that we could be waiting for all the wrong things. I think Joseph was waiting. I suppose he was waiting for a marriage. I suppose he was waiting for a, a, a quiet, God-fearing life where he could just get by. His people were waiting for something much greater, and he was probably part of that longing and that waiting as well. They were waiting for an act of God to show up and to break the cycle of their national disappointment. I spoke to a woman this week who told me that at Christmas time, all she's waiting for is for it to be over. She said December is nothing but an expensive, busy month where she has to go out as a single mother and try to do nothing more than earn a little extra money so that she can get her daughter all the things that her daughter thinks she wants. And she can't wait until all the toys are open and all the bills are paid and she can just get back to normal already. And it's all such a waste. And then in our bulletin, Jarrett asks us to pray for his wife because Christmas is a hard time. Christmas is the time that Hillary lost her father last year. It's the time that she lost her mother several years earlier. And she's a believer, and she, she knows the truth of the resurrection, and she believes in these things, but it's still hard. And it's still difficult for a lot of people as we wait for God's promises to be brought about and to be fulfilled in the way that he has said he will bring them about, that there is a day coming where there will be no tears or, or crying or weeping or disease or death will be swallowed up. And we still wait. 
Maybe this is the first Christmas without your mother. Maybe this is a Christmas unexpectedly single again. Or maybe this is the fifth Christmas in a row alone. And even for believers, Christmas can highlight the longings that we feel while we wait for the Lord to make good on his promises. Promises for wholeness, fellowship, life in abundance. And you're waiting for something. You're waiting for a child to come back to the church. You're waiting for peace around your dinner table. You're waiting for the right political candidate. You're waiting for somebody to notice you. You're waiting for the treatment to take effect. You're waiting for the pain to stop. Maybe you're waiting for something really good. Maybe you're waiting for something that's not worth waiting for. But this is the world that we live in, even as believers. Romans chapter 8, 23 tells us that we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our body. Jesus came into a world full of waiting. He came into the world that we live in, where we know what it is to long to see God's promises come to life. And if that's where you find yourself today, I want you to listen to what the Lord has to say to Joseph. Listen to his answer for all of your weary waiting. Because it comes in the form of a name. And that name is Jesus. Verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name was also common, probably at least as common as Joseph's name. We know it as the Greek form, Jesus, the Greek form of the Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua. It simply means Yahweh saves. God is salvation. And that's the answer that God gives to all of our deepest longings. God comes in to be our Savior. He comes in the person of the Son to be the Savior of sinners. Well, the thing that we have to reconcile with is the fact that if, if Joseph is the overlooked gift at Christmas, there's a chance that Jesus is the unwanted one. The gift that nobody actually wants to open on Christmas because of the implications of what this gift means for you. I love getting my wife presents at Christmas. Actually, I love getting my wife presents any time of the year, but she runs the checkbook, and so we have this agreement that I, I, will, not, I will not throw things off. So at Christmas time, that's part of the agreement. I get to buy my wife gifts, and if I went to a marriage counselor, they'd probably tell me that gift giving is my love language or whatever that means. I love to, to give gifts, to lavish things upon people that I care for. That's why Monday, unequivocally, is Donut Day in our household. Because I love to see my kids happy as they feel that rush of sugar. I love to give them things. And then I find something to do around the house. And <laughs> I love to give gifts to my wife, especially at Christmas. And, and part of that is the fact that I... I think I do a pretty good job of knowing exactly what she likes. We've been together for a while, and, and I know her interests. I know all the sizes that she wears. I know the colors that she will get more use out of. And to my knowledge, in 13 years of marriage, and this was confirmed last night, 13 years of marriage, my wife has never had to return a single gift that I've given her. Wow. 
I was not expecting that reaction. I love to get my wife gifts at Christmas because I get her what she wants. John chapter 1 tells us that when Jesus came to his own, his own people didn't receive him. They rejected him. They returned him unwanted. They said, Lord, do you have a gift receipt with this? I, I don't think that I want this. I, I don't think that I want the gift that you are sending into the world. Why is it that Jesus was rejected? He was rejected for a whole host of reasons. Some people rejected him because he came from humble Nazareth. Some of the Pharisees rejected him because they thought the circumstances of his birth were somewhat questionable. Others rejected him because he seemed to spend all of his time hanging around with nobodies, with sinners and with tax collectors, and he would go out and he would meet the lepers and the outcasts, and he would do the unthinkable. He would treat them as human beings with value and dignity, and people didn't like that, and they said, that's not the one that we want. That's not the Savior that God is sending into the world. Far and away, though, the reason Jesus was rejected I think this is the reason he was rejected then. It's the reason that he's still rejected today. He's rejected because his coming confronts us with the need that most of us try to ignore. His entry into our world exposes the fact that most people spend their lives waiting around for the wrong things to be put right. 2,000 years ago, the God of the cosmos sent his eternal son to be born in a village of Bethlehem. And before he came, he told his adoptive father why he was coming and what he was about to do. He said he's coming to save his people from their sins. Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus Christ came into the world to be our Savior, and in coming to be our Savior, He diagnoses what it is that we need to be saved from. He takes all of our misplaced longings and looking for the wrong thing, and He says, no, this is the issue that I'm coming to solve, because this is the issue that everybody needs to have solved. Our sin has made a separation between us and our God. So John Calvin says that the first truth we learn from the angel's message is that those whom Christ is sent to save are in themselves lost. That's the need that Christmas exposes. And that need is so uncomfortable that many choose instead to focus on the smaller things that they think they're waiting for. Or maybe like my friend, just waiting for Christmas to be over. Hoping again for normalcy and, and predictability. And that, at that time when we can tell ourselves, yes, we, we steer our course through this life with, with relative security. So that if the bills are paid and the kids are behaved, so that if our relationships run smoothly, maybe we can fool ourselves into thinking that all our needs have been met and there's nothing left to wait for. But there are moments when that facade is removed, when we are forced to admit that there is a longing deeper than our to-do list, deeper than our disappointments. We have a need to be reconciled, to be forgiven, to be saved. And Christ came in to be the Savior of sinners. He came in to give himself as a sacrifice in our place. 
He came in to bear our curse so that we can receive his blessing. He came in to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He came in to convince us that the Lord, who meets our most foundational need, can be trusted to deal with all of those smaller things as well. And so that we would trust him in that and trust him not just with the foundational need, that deepest longing for salvation, so that we would trust him with all of these smaller things, he gives us another name. And that name is Emmanuel. Now this one's translated for us, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. I wish that we had time this morning to unfold the, the promise and this prophecy from Isaiah that's being fulfilled here, but, but we're going to have to content ourselves just with the ocean of doctrine that is contained in those last three words, that Christ came to be Emmanuel. He came to be God with us. This is the miracle of the incarnation. This is the joy and the wonder of Christmas, Christ the Creator, the wellspring of all being, the eternal, almighty God, Christ the Creator, entered His creation. It's strange to think of it, but we sometimes forget that God is not already in creation. Rather, creation is in Him. In Him we live and move and have our being. In the words of one of our elders, reality itself is an idea in the mind of God. Existence exists because God has made it. And that means that he is outside of space and time. It is part of his divine nature that he is not bound by anything other than himself. He is wholly independent. That means that he does not need us, thank you very much. He does not need our praise and our glory to make himself more glorious. He is utterly unbound, and the glory of the incarnation is that he bound himself. He entered into time into space. He created universes and solar systems and planets so distant that the only reason that we know they exist is because we can measure the radiation that comes from stars that are hundreds of thousands of light years away. And he also created this planet and he created a body for himself so that he could enter into time and space. So that he could come into creation. He created humanity to bear his image, to be like him and to mirror his righteousness. And when we fell from that righteousness, when we were separated by our sin, he created a body for himself. And it's a miracle. It's not explained for us, and it's not supposed to be explained for us. It's simply something that we believe. It doesn't mean that it's foolish. It simply means that if you believe, if you begin with the foundational belief that there is a God who has created all things, who is outside of all things. No, these primitive people didn't believe that virgins were having children all over the place. They weren't stupid like some modern critics think they were stupid. Oh, that's the sort of thing that people believed back then. No, it wasn't. This was incredible. It was so incredible that Joseph said, I know what's going on. I think I need a divorce. And yet the Lord steps in just as easily as the Spirit hovered over that ancient depth and he brought creation and continents out of the abyss just as easily as the Spirit breathed life into a man formed from the dust of the ground, so the Spirit breathes life into the womb of a virgin and he creates a body for himself. 
and he enters into humanity. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, come to, to, to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. Have you ever considered that long list of names that the Bible gives to us to teach us the character of our Savior? He is Savior. He's Lord. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is our Good Shepherd. He is our Great High Priest. He is the resurrection and the life. He is our rock and our bridegroom. He is our beloved, our redeemer. He is the head over all things, which is his body, the church. But perhaps no name is quite so precious as Emmanuel. The name that teaches us that he is God with us. There's encouragement in that name. Because God is with us, we have sympathy. We have a sacrifice. Because he is with us, we know that he is for us. There's encouragement in the name Emmanuel, but there's also a promise in the name Emmanuel. You notice that here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he, he begins his account with the declaration that Christ will be known as God with us. But then at the end, he ends his gospel with the promise that this is always going to be true for God's people. Do you remember the closing words of, of Matthew's gospel? The last word is go. Go, therefore. Make disciples of, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And look, behold, look at this. I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always, he says. I'm with you when... When you go through your longing and your waiting and the disappointment of your sin, I'm with you when it sometimes looks from where you stand that God may have abandoned his promises for the first time in history. I'm with you when you doubt that I'm with you. I'm with you unto the end of the age. I'm with you until I come to take you to be with me. That's the promise of Christmas. That's what we learn from these names, that Christ entered a world of waiting to prove to us that God's promises never fail, to prove to us that He is the Savior who is with us, and by God's grace, He is with us at Christmas. He is with us through our longings. He is with us to the end of the ages. Jesus Christ is the Savior who is Emmanuel. He is the God who is with us. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that Christ is the one who has the name above all names, who is Savior and Lord and King and Emmanuel. Thank you that by your spirit you dwell with your people unto the end of the age. So, oh, Lord, we pray that you would keep us and preserve us, cause us to hope and trust in you through all our longings, direct our hearts to see that you are the one who meets our most foundational need of sin, and forgiveness. Call us to see that you can be trusted with all the rest as well, and to know that you are with us, that we might walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come again to a table that proclaims to us the glory of the incarnation. We're coming today to a table, and it is 
no small thing that the gospel here is presented to us in tangible signs, physical symbols that we can touch and taste and feel. Because when Christ entered into humanity, he took on himself a real body and a reasonable soul so that he would give that body as a sacrifice for sinners, so that he could give over real flesh and spill real blood to save those whom he is calling to himself. That's what we see here. That's what we receive at this table. It's a promise pointing back to the body that he took so that he might lay it down, so that he might draw us to himself. And the promise that he is at work in his people to keep them and preserve them unto the end of the ages is for all those who have trusted in him. If you are his child today, if you have been joined to his church, it doesn't have to be this congregation, but if you are joined to his church and have professed publicly that he is your Lord, then come and eat and drink and rejoice in him who was given for you. Rejoice that he makes promises that will always be fulfilled, that he will take you to himself, that you may be with him where he is. You may see him as he is. You may be like him. Come and receive the truth and the promise that is contained here and and pictured here for us. If you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not professed faith in him, we ask you not to come to the table to recognize that you are still in your sins apart from Jesus Christ. Consider whether the Lord may be calling you to himself, to faith and to repentance. Receive new life in his name and receive again the gift of Christ this Christmas by the work of his spirit in your heart. And for those who are his and those who have been joined to him, come and eat and drink together with us. Read the words of institution from Mark's gospel. He tells us that as Jesus was eating with his disciples, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Would you join me in prayer?